Hi, this is the podcast Matinees on Main Street, where we're wandering through the early history of the movies. As we approach the new century, the one that we call the 20th century, I've been wrapping up a few things. In the last episode, I discussed the movie situation in Britain at the turn of the century. Today, we're going to look at the beginnings of cinema in Japan. This is going to be a tough episode, as there is limited information about Japan's early experience in film, at least in the language that I know. Like many of the countries outside of America and Western Europe, Japan's first experiences with the movies had to wait until someone arrived to show it to them. But Japan was in an interesting cultural position at that time. It was one of a number of countries that had set out to modernize its culture during the 19th century, and it seems they did so more successfully than most of the other countries attempting the same thing. Japan's drive towards modernism was a reaction to the country's growing isolationism two centuries earlier. Like China, Japan was not impressed by the sudden appearance of merchants from European countries and was very wary of the ideas that were being spread through published books and newspapers. The Japanese government only allowed the Dutch access to the Japanese market and restricted the presence to Dejima, the trading district set up in Nagasaki. While the books brought into Japan could at times reveal ideas that were threatening to Japanese culture, they also revealed ideas that were important and even impressive. This includes some of the works in science, especially books on anatomy. Until a handful of Western European anatomists started to describe the workings of the human body, it would be fair to say that no culture had any real grasp on how things worked inside of us, even at a relatively simple level. After all, when Etienne Jules Murray was studying horses, it was simply to figure out whether blood moved when the heart beat, or during the interval between the beats. At that time, science had only just uncovered the dangers of microscopic biology. And it wasn't until the 1880s that Dr. Robert Cook discovered that bacteria was the cause of some of our diseases. And we still had not discovered viruses, and it would be decades before we discovered the impact of our urban environment on our health. What all of this means is that by the late 1700s, the Japanese could see that there were things to learn from the West. Unfortunately, like every society, these issues became part of the political atmosphere, so it would take another half century before anything could be done about it. It was the appearance of Commodore Perry and his warships in 1853 that brought this issue to a head when he forced the government to accept American trade merchants. The failure of the shogunate to deal with the Americans led to a revolt. Members of the samurai class preferred the deification of the emperor to the power of the shogunate. 
As the emperor was only 15 at the time, the samurai leaders led the cultural revolution, known as the Meiji Restoration. Isolationism was out. Globalism and nationalism was in. The taxing system was overhauled, and a new education system was put in place. Western ideas about science, particularly in medicine and anatomy, were studied, and Western consultants were brought in. Japan's sudden rise as a world power paralleled the same moves in Germany and Italy, and in all three countries, nationalism was fueling a rapid growth of the military. This change in Japan happened in the last three decades of the 19th century, so when a kinetoscope appeared in Kobe, the idea of moving images was considered a sharp new Western idea that could be introduced into Japanese culture. The person who brought the kinetoscope into Kobe, Japan, was Shokai Lainel. He was an import-export man and the large wooden box and small collection of films he brought to Japan was meant for Takahashi Shinji. Takahashi owned a gun shop in Kobe. Where or how he found out about the kinetoscope is not known, but he went through the same process that the Lumiere salesmen would later follow when they took their cinematographs around the world. In his case, he gave a showing to Prince Komatsu Akahito, one of the top military men in Japan at the time. Again, it's not sure how Takahashi came to invite Prince Komatsu to view the kinetoscope, but the exhibition was a success. This took place in November 17th of 1896, but think about that date. It's well over two years after Edison first put his kinetoscope on the market. This novelty had already seen better days and was now vanishing into the past. By this time, Edison had already put his vitascope projector on the market, as had the Lumieres with theirs. What Takahashi was showing the prince, and he may not even have known it at the time, was old technology. Even the films were Japanese, not American, which was usually what the Edisons provided their customers. Who made those films is not known, but it leaves me with questions. Were they Lumiere films, or possibly dupes by Edison? If not, then who filmed them? Was it Takahashi himself? If so, with what camera did he use? Since this was late 1896, the most logical answer was that it was made with a Lumiere camera. It was the only one on the market at the time. Still, the Lumiere camera had a different advancement device from the one the Edisons used, so either someone punched holes in the film to fit an Edison camera, or the films were made by Edison, duping Lumiere films. But really, who knows? A few days later, on the 20th of November to be precise, the films were shown to Princess Oraisakawa at a bayside resort known as Meiku Villa, just outside of Osaka. This meeting was written up in the local newspaper. From there on, the kinetoscope started to wander across Japan and even changing owners along the way. Through December, 
Takahashi took the cumbersome machine into Osaka City, where he ran the machine for three weeks with a partner, Fukusuki Miki. Fukusuki owned a watch shop, and it's possible that the kinetoscope was set up in the shop as the profits were split half and half. These films were accompanied by a benshi, a public narrator that was used in some other forms of Japanese entertainments. But rather than explaining a complex story done with puppets, in this case, the benshis explained the machine, the process used in running and making the films, and what little needed to be told about the film clips. This was not an unheard of thing elsewhere. At the beginning of the movie era, some vaudeville theaters in America were doing the same thing, although it was certainly not universal. And the few that did it soon stopped once the public got the hang of the concept. Soon, music would be the major accompaniment. But in Japan, even with Japanese music, the benches continued through the silent era. After his success in Osaka, Takahashi sold the kinetoscope to Zhao Hongshu. Hongshu also collected money on the machine, but soon sold it, and it disappeared into history. The reason was simple. The Lumiere cinematograph had reached Japan, and the man responsible for this insightful move was Inabata Katsutaro. His family ran a wagashi store in Kyoto. A wagashi shop could be considered something of a confectionery or candy shop. Confectionery is probably a better equivalent because we're not talking about packaged candy. Instead, we're talking about well-crafted, handmade confections. In Kyoto, Inabata did very well in school, and as a member of a family that was doing well in a business, he was offered a scholarship. One website said that the money came from the people in his prefect, while another said it was supplied by a weaving firm in Kyoto. What makes the most sense was from the website that said that the money came from the Kyoto Prefecture government itself. What he was pursuing was academic knowledge of the skills of weaving and dye making, especially as it applied to the Western techniques in silk manufacturing. That meant going to a trade school, or maybe a technical school. The one he was to attend was in Lyon, France. La Martiniere, Lyon. While he studied and adjusted to life in France, he met a local boy at the school who was 11 days older than him. His name was Auguste Lumiere. Almost nothing has been written about their relationship. It's not known whether they were just friendly acquaintances or school friends. But after seven years at the school and another at the university, Inabata returned to Japan. In the beginning, he taught other local textile and dye people the manufacturing processes of Western fabric making, before starting an import-export company that specialized in dyes. Soon his company expanded into the manufacturing and processing of dyes, and even fabric making itself, as Inabata was now a renowned specialist in the Western processes of silk manufacturing. 
His company would take the name of Inabata and Company and become international with facilities on several continents. Today, the company specializes in computer circuitry and components, but continues to deal in its traditional products of dyes and pigments. In 1896, Inabata was in Europe, traveling for his company, possibly in researching the building of a weaving and dyeing factory when he visited the Lumiere family. This was the year that the cinematograph had become the greatest invention since sliced bread, and the Lumiere's lives were filled with praise and problems as they promoted their machine. It's not known if Inabata's visit was on purpose, an extension of his curiosity towards their marvelous new machine, or if it was simply a social visit at a very important time. In an article that I read about the cinematograph in Japan, which was written by Hiroshi Komatsu and translated by Ben Brewster, there was a quote from Inabata that said, I thought that the cinematograph was much more suitable than still photography for the presentation of European culture in Japan. In other words, Inabata was looking for the proper medium to convey Europe's cultural changes to the Japanese. The Industrial Revolution had brought about an endless series of changes, and whether these changes were ephemeral or permanent, whether they were trivial or important, they kept happening. But to many Asians living in a society that had a sense of permanence, these changes in Europe might have seemed not only bewildering or puzzling, but even frightening. And more important to the heads of these governments was how this all affected the political power in Europe and in Asia. All those newsreel clips about American warships in harbors, Russian soldiers marching in parade, or French cavalry charging towards the camera were not simply news of the day. They were also messages that each country sent to others about their own military power and the Asians were no exception to this curiosity. It's the importance of sending and receiving that knowledge in a moving picture format that was catching the minds of Japan's industrial elite. As the article I just mentioned had stated, quote, For this member of the elite of the Meiji period, the cinematograph, a product of science of the day, represented more than mere intellectual phenomenon. For Inabata, it was something which could provide a true cultural education. Similarly, for Auguste Lumiere, Inabata was more than a mere acquaintance. As a Japanese businessman with an entry to commercial and industrial circles in Kyoto, he was an important figure. For Auguste Lumiere to allow Inabata to introduce the cinematograph in Japan rather than opening his own outlets was a kind of a ironclad guarantee. Unquote. It's known that Inabata bought two of their camera projectors along with some movies and camera film. What's also known is that a Lumiere cameraman named Francois Constant Jurel had worked there for a time. Film historian Daisuke Mayao mentions that there is no documentation that suggests that Jurel and Inabata had made any kind of an arrangement about traveling to Japan or to work for Inabata. 
But if there are no letters or agreements, it certainly does look as if some kind of an agreement had been made. In early January 1897, Inabata and Jarrell arrived in Kobe, a city just outside of Osaka, where Jarrell would be housed during his visit. Their arrival happened at the time that Zhao Hongshu purchased Takahashi's kinetoscope and soon found himself struggling due to the excitement being paid to the cinematograph. Despite Inabata's reputation as a businessman, in order to use a local theater for the use of this new, novel French machine, he had to pay his respects to the local entertainment chief, Okudu Benjuro. In other words, it was not unlike the Lumiere or Edison people negotiating with the heads of the vaudeville circuit. Or even when Takahashi Shinji went to Prince Akahito and provided a kinetoscope performance for him. But in the relationship between Inabata and Okuda, it wasn't simply arranging a percentage deal, but of handing over a very large sum of money. Something rather cold-hearted and mercenary, considering the rather altruistic intentions of Inabata's desires. Still, considering the amount of money the movies would bring in, maybe Okuda was the more visionary person in film up to that point. Then again, it was probably just a Japanese custom. In the last two weeks of February of 1897, Jarrell ran the cinematograph at the Nanchi Umbujo, a dance theater in Kobe, or at least that's what the name suggests. During those last two weeks, a rotation of eight different film clips were projected, with the movies being changed every day. This went on from 5 in the evening to 11 at night. At the same time, Inabata and Okuda formed the Association for Automatic Photographic Pictures. Considering that Kobe, Kyoto, and Osaka are so close to each other, it shouldn't be surprising that the cinematograph would soon appear in all of these towns through the efforts of Inabata and Okuda. There is a description of one exhibition that shows that Jarrell was using what was called backward projection in his shows. This seems to have been a concept that the Germans were experimenting with, and there are occasional mentions of backward projection exhibitions at this time, even in America. The main reason for this style of projection was to keep the noisy, clattering projectors away from the audiences. How noisy? Consider the introductory theme to this podcast. I had to look a long time to find a sound of a projector that was noisy enough to fit my needs. Projectors would soon quiet down into a loud hum and become segregated in a projection booth, but at the beginning, projectors were very noisy. Backwards projection reduced the problem by secluding the projector backstage. The problem then became finding a way to make the sheet translucent enough to show a clear image. The Germans experimented with oils, but most people attempted to use water. This tended to give the screen a bit of a sparkle when you viewed the images, and it may be the original reason why there was always attempts to make the later projection screens sparkle like silver. In Japan, the segregation of the projector also had a secondary reason. This allowed the benchy to be heard. In this case, it involved a friend of Yusada's named Yuida Hotekin, 
who borrowed a Western-style dinner jacket to wear in order to appear as a representative of Western culture when he made his presentations. It's not that it gave him or the machine class, but that it made more sense to be discussing Western science and machine art while wearing Western clothes. Yuida later talked about some of the problems he faced, some of which were pretty funny. The films were spliced into loops, another trick that was occasionally done elsewhere at this time. But when a loop of an actor portraying Napoleon was played, Yuida found himself repeating the phrase, This is Napoleon. This is Napoleon. This is Napoleon. Until the crowd started laughing. Jarrell, as a representative of the Lumieres, understood that his job was not just projection, but making films that his company could distribute and even sell. Jurel started spending more time traveling throughout Japan and looking for interesting sites to film than he did exhibiting the cinematograph. Instead, Inabata started using employees to run the machine and a shift took place. Because the newer projection operators were now Japanese rather than French, a cultural drift took place in how the camera was used by the operator and perceived by the audiences. In a way, the same thing happened in Western Europe and in America. As the public came to own the movies through their continued attendance at film exhibitions, projectionists as well as manufacturers had to bow to the audience's unknown desires. In Japan, those desires, while much more Asian in scope, also had to be met. But Inabata wanted to use the camera and projector as a way of bringing Western ideas to Japan, rather than using them to reflect Japanese and Asian ideas. This led to what was called the cinematograph spectacular side. That probably implies what I usually refer to as the novelty of early cinema, meaning that people were too distracted by the simple novelty of seeing images move to be concerned about whether a film clip was entertaining or educating its audience. This would lead to camera operators everywhere performing stunts or tricks with their projectors, such as running the film backwards, or as I mentioned earlier, running them in loops. It's what also made Melies's film so popular at this time, they too were perceived as camera tricks, at least until he expanded upon his storytelling abilities to lead the movies out of this land of novelty and spectacle. By the time that the cinematograph was appearing in Tokyo, Inabata had all but washed his hands of the whole thing. He said he had lost his taste for spectacle. Obviously, people were not appreciating the machine and its process for what he wanted it to do. He was not the first person to feel this way about public reactions. Inabata was not the only Kyoto citizen to have traveled to Lyon to study, and this bond made him friends with Yakoto Masuno Suki, whose family ran an import-export business in Kobe. Masuno Suki had a brother named Ainosuki, who had actually spent time in America and was quite aware of the American flair for showmanship and braggadocio. When he returned to Japan, he had an X-ray machine with him. At the time, X-rays were not known to be the dangerous medical instrument that they are now considered. Having only been introduced to the public and even to the scientific world in the mid-1890s, 
all anyone really understood was that it allowed you to look into objects and people. While it seemed that they could be a very useful tool for the medical community, it was primarily seen as a novelty and would be used in fitting shoes on people for quite some time. Yakoda brought this latest Western idea of a scientific novelty into Japan, where he treated it less as if it were a scientific advancement and more as if it were simply a novelty. He had a small wooden hut he named the Hall of Mysteries, which held a number of electrical items, and he had it electrically wired. He toured the country, proudly proclaiming the wonders of these machines, as well as demonstrating them. Yakota drew big crowds and proved to be quite remarkable at selling the idea of these machines as wonders. This was not the egalitarian approach that Inabata had been attempting, but it was much closer to the hucksterism that was appearing just about everywhere in the Western world at the time, especially in America. Yakota's goal was to bring the cinematograph north to Tokyo. What he may have been unaware of was that the capital city had already seen moving images. Another Japanese man with some American experience, known as Arai Suburo, had set up one of Edison's vitascopes at a local theater and had drawn much attention. The Arais were descendants of a samurai family. Unfortunately, Suburo's chances of gaining much from his family's position were little to none. Instead, after schooling, he too traveled to the States, working odd jobs and learning from his Western experiences. Unlike Yakota in his dramatic flair for show business, Arai was quieter and more studied in his approach to learning and business success. He had trained in horticulture and law and even established his own import-export business, having worked in that capacity as a very young man. All this success seems to have come after his experiences in America, but at some point he designed the Japanese pavilion for the Chicago World's Fair and later visited the Edison facility in East Orange. He ended up buying two vitascopes and a number of films. Whether either or both of these events happened after his return to Japan, I don't know. The timetable is not clear. What is known is that late in February of 1897, halfway through Inabata's exhibition at the Nanchi Emburjo in Kobe, Yakota exhibited films on his vitascope at the Shinmachi Theater in Osaka. While Arai was not the flamboyant showman that Yakota was, he was certainly smart about his advertising. He moved on to Tokyo in March, and after weighing the advice of advertising specialists, he used barges to send musicians down the Sanjakan Canal playing music while handing out leaflets for the premiere of the automated pictures at the Kikakan Theater in Tokyo. Yokota, looking to capture the Japanese market himself, proclaimed in the posters that the cinematograph was a gift to the Japanese Empire from the French a tribute to its burgeoning power and grandeur. The price war also suggested that Arai was aiming for the high-class patrons at 90 cents, while Yokota was going for the people with the 12-cent admission. Both shows were successes. 
something the moving images had also accomplished in New York and London. Due to the competition, the crowds were quite large and the police had to make sure that the theaters were not overcrowded. The Japanese shows also exhibited a glamour that had not yet been found in American or European shows. This was due to the appearances of the Benshi, who dressed in style, whether it was Japanese or Western. At his premiere, Yakota showed up in a Western suit with a black bow tie, and his projectionist showed the Lumiere actualities. At the Kikakan, R.I.'s program featured Edison vaudeville stars as well as a few trick films, such as The Death of Mary Queen of Scots and The Black Diamond Express. While it shouldn't be surprising that these two shows were quite successful considering the novelty, as well as the efforts put into the marketing of the shows, what is probably more astonishing was this rivalry that was set up almost immediately. Probably of less importance was Araki Kasuichi, who had his own vitagraph and set up for a little while only to later shut it all down. But it was Kawara Kenichi who would make the competition a threesome. Kawara had married into the Yoshizawa family and ended up running the family company, of course named Yoshizawa Company. Kawara had a real interest in novelties and offbeat ideas that could make money. He latched onto a number of curious Japanese items that could be marketed to Europeans and Americans hungry for these Asian novelties. This included Japanese stamps as well as hand-painted Japanese-themed glass slides. He also befriended an Italian military officer who knew of Kawara's desire to use Western novelties as a way to make money in Japan. So he had a cinematograph sent to Kawara as a surprise, which Kawara embraced as an upgrade from the magic lanterns he sold and studied the machine. Rather than competing with the projectors in Osaka, he held his first exhibitions in neighboring Yokohama. Exhibitions continued in this part of Japan and even occasionally appeared in Tokyo. New films arrived and were shown in theaters with a lot of fuss over the movies arising after the showing of the May Irwin Kiss movie short. Unfortunately, no one knew how to make films as Jarrell had never learned how to develop them. This seems to have been at least part of the reason that Inabata never had any respect for Jarrell. In June of 1897, the Konishi Camera Store in Tokyo received a Gaumont-style camera, and the owner set about learning how to use it. While he did waste a fair amount of film in the process, he was now the owner of some very valuable knowledge in Japan. Interestingly, it was a Benshi by the name of Komada Koyo who showed the first significant interest in filming images. I suppose it's not that surprising as the Benshi were probably the only people involved in the showing of films who had any real artistic interest or sense. By 1899, he was working independently as both an exhibitor and as a benchy for his own shows. At that time, he talked to the people at the Konishi store, and a worker was sent over to show Kamada the film recording and development process. Together, they attempted to film geishas dancing, although dancing had always proven to be a bit perilous, as dancers tended to move beyond the scope of the fixed camera. 
Of course, now we just do many different shots and edit it all together, but in 1899, only Georges Méliès was really experimenting with editing. Regardless, there was a lot of interest in Komada's Geisha Girls film. Komada followed that success by taking advantage of an idea that was becoming universal among camera operators, and that was of reenacting an event popular among the public. The Edison and the Mutoscope Biograph people did that by reenacting the Spanish-American War. The Brits did the same thing with the Boer War. And Georges Méliès would soon do that with a reenactment of the Dreyfus trial. But Komada's idea was simply the reenactment of a popular crime, a robbery that had fascinated people in Tokyo. The film was called The Lightning Robber Was Arrested and it featured a popular local actor named Yokoyama Umpai as the detective arresting the robber. Unlike later with the Great Train Robbery, no crime was depicted on the screen, just the arrest. But in Japan, it was a sensation. Film was slowly working its way into Japanese culture, primarily because of the willingness of the government and the business community to modernize culture. Many films shown in Japan at this time were still from the Western world, but there was a true interest in Japanese films. A few years into the future, Japan would have its own wartime cinema obsessions brought home from the Russo-Japanese War, and the recording of early samurai films is not too far off. It's obvious from Japan's testing of the cinematic waters that a positive attitude towards change helped bring about this interest in the movies. It would be a bit interesting to see how this change measured to the way film developed in Britain. Although England was considered one of the homes of modernism, the culture itself was remarkably less willing to accept this kind of change, as well as the growth of an internal British film industry, than was happening in Japan. Still, it's easy for a country like America to change, as its culture was still developing at this time. So the willingness of the Japanese to embrace film is quite remarkable. Next time, we'll take the plunge and start heading into the brave new world of the 20th century. Thanks for listening.